As far as ceremonies go, it could have stood to have had a good PR person. The first problem was the weather. Being December 29th, 1863, it was cold. That and snow was falling, with some sources going so far as to say it was a full-on snowstorm. Then there was the location. It was held on a lonely spot on the Colorado Plateau. The springs there were a pleasant break from the long dusty road, but it was still not a prominent place for the occasion. The men gathered, too, were an odd assortment. There were only a handful of them, but they were, almost to a man, Easterners, completely unfamiliar with the place where they now stood. And, for that matter, they weren't entirely certain where they were going, either. At least, even without the benefit of modern marketing, they had a sense of the importance of their purpose. Despite all these less-than-ideal conditions, they pushed forward with the ceremony anyway. There were fitting remarks, complete with the sort of language you can only get from 19th century politicians. A flag was raised, a prayer said, and a proclamation read. Finally, the requisite short celebration was held afterward, before they had to press forward once again. And with that simple, almost understated ceremony, the United States Territory of Arizona was officially organized. I'm your host, David Ruckhausen, and you are listening to AZ, The History of Arizona. Episode 43, The Father of Arizona. We've been rightly focusing on the Civil War and the Apache conflicts for the past several episodes, which means that most of the political matters have fallen by the wayside. The last time we really talked about politics at all was back in episode 32, where I detailed how much the early settlers wanted to become a territory, but how much Congress, distracted by concerns of slavery and the growing conflict between North and South, really, really didn't want to take up the issue. But then, pop quiz, just to see how well you've been paying attention, what happened? That's right. The South declared that they were their own country, the rebels invaded New Mexico, and Lieutenant Colonel Baylor declared that the Confederacy would be more than happy to recognize a new slice of land called Arizona. And that last bit seemed to really get the ball rolling in Washington, D.C., Of course, several factors contributed to this being the right time to finally form a new territory, and different sources are eager to proclaim one as the quote-unquote real reason legislators finally got moving. So here they are. First and foremost, the ease with which the Confederacy was able to win the dissidents in lower New Mexico and Arizona over to their side by giving them exactly what they wanted could not be ignored. Secondly, with no Southerners left in Congress, it was a little easier to get things to go through. Third, and we will get into this more next week, the discovery of gold in central Arizona and the promise that the wealth would go into Union coffers. And finally, we have the continual lobbying of our old friends Samuel Heiselman and Charles D. Poston. As for Poston who we have not seen since episode 36 and the beginning of the war, he had fled from Tubac to California, 
and from there to New York, and finally down to Washington, where he kept up lobbying to make Arizona a real territory. Though, as one source pointed out, if you only listened to Poston's account, you would walk away with the impression that he had gotten the project off the ground single-handedly. For example, in his short narrative, Building a State in Apache Land, Poston recounts that he and Heiselman called upon Abraham Lincoln one day, quote, when the Civil War was nearly over, to talk about forming the territory. He notes, a little wryly, that the other great boosters for territorial status were now out of the picture, as Granville Arry was, in his words, cooling his heels in the Confederate Congress, and Sylvester Mowry was at that time sitting in a jail cell in Fort Yuma. During this meeting, Lincoln recommended they talk to Senator Benjamin F. Wade of Ohio, who chaired the Committee on Territories. Poston approached Wade, who was not committed at first, but finally agreed to sit down with Lincoln to discuss it, and that eventually led to Representative James M. Ashley introducing a bill into the House. As something of a long aside, during that first meeting with Wade, Poston said the gruff old senator quipped that he had heard of Arizona and, quote, it is just like hell. All it lacks is water and good society. End quote. I bring this up because this quote, or variations of it, crop up all the time across the various sources during the period. I have seen it attributed to so many different people at so many different times that I'm starting to suspect it was never actually said at all, but just sort of willed itself into existence, and we are left with nothing but fuzzy recollections of where it came from. So if you've heard this quote before also, here is just one of the many, many different places that it could have possibly come from. As engaging and self-aggrandizing as Poston's account is, you notice that he went to Lincoln, he went to Wade, he went to Ashley. If these meetings ever did happen, equal credit must also be given to Heiselman. It's been a while since we mentioned him, but remember that Heiselman was running Poston's Sonora Mining and Exploring Company back in Ohio and had managed to pull in new financing, including Samuel Colt. Heiselman most likely used his position and the mineral samples that had been pulled out of Arizona to urge Cincinnati businessmen to put some pressure on the state's congressional representatives to open up Arizona for further profitable adventures. It would be no accident that the biggest drivers for creating the territory of Arizona just happened to hail from Ohio. And then we can mix in with Poston's drive, the Confederate invasion, and other favorable conditions in the capital to create the necessary political cocktail for this push to be successful. To Congressional Delegate John S. Watts of New Mexico, goes the distinction of introducing the first new bill to organize a federal territory of Arizona in December 1861. This bill soon merged with that of Representative Ashley, who chaired the Committee on Territories. The Organic Act of the Arizona Territory was fully introduced to the House of Representatives on March 12, 1862, so a few weeks after the Union defeat at Valverde and a couple weeks before the Union victory at Glorieta Pass. This bill is also the first proposal that decided to split New Mexico from Arizona longitudinally rather than laterally. You might remember from the bills that were proposed in the late 1850s 
that the citizens of Tucson and Mesilla originally argued for a long squat rectangle that ran between the Rio Grande and the Colorado, leaving Santa Fe and basically everything north of the Gila River in New Mexico. Ashley's bill called for dividing Arizona from New Mexico in the way we still have it today, with a straight line running along a meridian 32 degrees west of Washington, D.C., at 109 degrees, 2 minutes, and 59 seconds longitude. The reason for the east-west division instead of the north-south division is where the Civil War comes in. All the people agitating to make Arizona a territory before the war had been in southern Arizona and southern New Mexico, and that was consequently the same lot that had thrown in with the rebels during the invasion. So the solution was to separate any secessionist-minded folks from each other by lumping Mesilla in with Santa Fe and Tucson in with the Army Post and other settlements in Arizona. I should also note that the bill as written also gave Arizona some 12,000 square miles in the northwest on the far side of the Colorado, which today is inside of Nevada. So yeah, Las Vegas was almost a city in Arizona. Supporters of the bill made the same arguments we've mostly gone over. Gold had recently been discovered in Arizona, something the Union badly needed and something they should definitely keep out of the hands of the Confederacy. That wealth would also balance out any cost to get a territory up and running. Proponents also made the more lofty arguments that there were some 6,500 white people in the territory, something of an exaggeration, alongside 4,000 Amerindians, who all deserved the benefits of good American-style government. However, opposition was also plentiful. In early debates, a congressman from New York argued that Congress had not received any petition for statehood from the actual residents of Arizona itself, and that he personally doubted anyone actually lived there. Either he had forgotten or had not been in Congress when the people who actually did live in Arizona made nearly a half dozen appeals just a few years earlier. Other opponents argued that out of the 6,500 whites spoken of, only 600 were actually white, with the rest being horror of horrors, Mexicans, or mixed race. After all, all the Unionists had been driven off by the invading Confederates, right? So there was really no one left in Arizona to organize a territory around. Finally, the opposition argued that the only reason the bill was being introduced was to create patronage jobs for office seekers. The debates in the House were lively, but finally the Organic Act of the Arizona Territory passed by a slim majority on May 8, 1862. But it managed to hit another snag when it was introduced into the Senate. The same opposition arguments were carried over there, namely that there were very few loyal actual white inhabitants in the territory, and that this was all just a scheme to give cushy government jobs to cronies. That last argument rang a bit hollow, though, as one of the people making it was a senator from Illinois who had just secured the governorship of the Dakota Territory for his own brother-in-law. But as much as Senator Wade of Ohio pushed for the bill's immediate adoption, it was tabled until the next session of Congress. Though this must have felt like a defeat, it turned out to actually help get the bill passed, because that meant in the meantime, Heiselman, Poston, and business interests could continue to lobby various members of Congress. 
Also, as we've seen, all through 1862, Carleton and the California Column were able to roll through Arizona, while the army in New Mexico managed to drive all the rebels out. So there goes those fears about there being no loyal Americans left in the territory. And finally, between the spring of 1862 and the winter of 1862-63, there was a midterm election, and a lot of Republicans ended up losing their seats. That means there were more than a few lame ducks around that could be persuaded to vote in favor of the bill if it meant they could secure a job after their term in office ended. So, yeah, the opposition had been spot on when it came to creating jobs for cronies, but hey, the patronage system was well established in Washington and would go on for a few more decades, so it wasn't like no one didn't expect this. And all this is to say that when the next session of Congress started, they were ready to pass themselves a bill. After more than a year of arguments and lobbying, the bill to officially create the Territory of Arizona passed on February 20th, 1863, and would be signed into law by President Abraham Lincoln on February 24th. The bill that finally made it through both houses and to Lincoln's desk provided for all the laws currently active in the New Mexico Territory to continue into the new territory. Provisions were also made for the standard type of government with the traditional executive, judiciary, and legislative branches. It also declared slavery illegal in Arizona, which I'm sure you all saw coming. And future railroad lines were also mentioned to go across the territory at the 32nd and 35th parallels, or basically the same routes recommended by the railroad expeditions we covered back in the 1850s. Funny enough, what helped pass the bill in the Senate was striking out the provision that the territorial capital be at Tucson. As you can imagine, the fact that the only real city in the territory had not only acquiesced to the rebels, but had pretty much welcomed them in, made it an undesirable place to set up shop. Now, the legislators had no idea where to place the capital, so they just struck the provision altogether. They could, and would, worry about that part later. As a thank you gift for President Lincoln, Poston arranged for an intricate inkwell to be fashioned out of Arizona silver. It was fashioned by Tiffany and Company and reportedly cost $1,500, which is quite a tidy sum when you take 156 years of inflation into account. This large inkwell featured a replica of the Capitol Dome covering the ink itself, with the figures of a native woman, which unfortunately is modeled on a Comanche and not, you know, an Arizona native tribe, and a frontiersman flanking on either side. Inscribed on it are the words Abraham Lincoln, and on the other side, from Charles D. Poston, Arizona, 1865. Unfortunately, given how long it took to make and actually get to the president, he probably only had the joy of using it for maybe a month or so before his untimely death in April 1865. Today, though, the inkwell is in the Library of Congress, so if you ever have the chance, look it up. It's actually pretty cool. Now that the territory had been officially organized, it was time to appoint officials for it. To that end, a large oyster dinner was held that all the lame duck congressmen, Republican leaders, and other office seekers were invited to. As everyone was wined and dined, the territory's various positions were divided up and portioned out. Now, some, including Poston, indicate this dinner happened while the bill was still being debated, 
perhaps as a way to induce some of the legislators to vote in favor of passing it. However, others say it happened afterwards as a way to celebrate the bill's passage and to really get the ball rolling. I'm not sure which is true, because both seem very plausible, so I'll just say that, yes, this dinner happened. The evening went on and everyone was having a jolly old time when Poston was suddenly struck by a thought. They had given an office to pretty much everyone, but what did he have? The Apache and the Civil War had run him off his property at Tubac, and he had spent a couple years now lobbying Congress to make Arizona a territory, so shouldn't he get some compensation? By his own account, which everyone quotes, toward the end of the evening he took a stiff drink and then asked, quote, Gentlemen, what is to become of me? End quote. There was a short record scratch moment, and then the newly, though unofficially, selected governor and other officials scanned the remaining vacancies and said something to the effect of, Oh, we'll make you the Indian agent. That seemed to mollify Poston, and the party went on. And I would like to say here that it's because of his years as a tireless promoter of Arizona, first as a mining foreman in Tubac, and then as a lobbyist for creating the territory, that Poston earned for himself the honorific the father of Arizona. One can argue that others may deserve the title more, but you can't argue the vital role the old self-promoter and businessman played in getting his adopted home into the Union. Now that the oyster and booze-fueled schmoozing was over, it was time to ratify and officially proclaim the territorial leaders. In March 1863, Lincoln appointed John A. Gurley to be the territorial governor. Gurley had, you guessed it, lost his latest bid to be re-elected to the House of Representatives from, wait for it, Ohio. Now, unfortunately, he would suddenly die on August 18, 1863, and so Lincoln would promote John N. Goodwin, another defeated congressman from Maine, from Chief Justice of the Territorial Supreme Court, to the office of governor. Historian Howard R. Lamar remarks that a lot of people, myself included, make a lot of hay over the fact that the majority of these men were lame ducks who had been appointed to high positions because they promised to support the bill. And that was certainly true. But Lamar points out that four of the men for the territory's top nine slots were also those who came from mining states and had considerable business interests for heading to Arizona as well. So it was still a lot of crass self-interest, but at least they switched up the motivations for that crass self-interest just a little bit. Gurley's untimely death meant a delay in getting the whole party started in the direction of their new assignments. Ultimately, they would gather together and travel to Fort Leavenworth before heading out on the Santa Fe Trail. I will note for record-keeping purposes that Poston was not among the party. He took a stagecoach from Kansas out to Sacramento and then down to San Francisco. He would eventually fall in with J. Ross Brown, a journalist and agent for the Department of the Interior, who would accompany Poston to Arizona, first by sailing to Los Angeles and then crossing overland to Tucson. Brown actually wrote an account of these travels, which will be a source for me going forward. But if historian Lamar is to be believed, it's probably a good thing Poston didn't travel with the rest. 
because according to him, the group, unsurprisingly, turned out to be a gaggle of political opportunists and spent most of the time on the road to Santa Fe arguing about who would get the plum position as the territory's first delegate to Congress. They eventually arrived in Santa Fe in mid-November 1863, where they were greeted by General Carleton at his headquarters. We also learned that, at this point, no one really had any idea exactly where they were heading. You'll recall that setting the capital at Tucson had been stricken out of the official bill, but early state historian James H. McClintock says that sources had indicated to him that at least some of the new officials still thought that was the destination. And they must have discussed this with Carlton because most of my sources say that the general did his level best to convince them not to set up shop in the old Pueblo. If you've been following this podcast the last few episodes, it shouldn't come as any great surprise that the general had a rather dim view of the city, which he still considered a hotbed of secessionist talk and activity despite his own efforts to clean up the place. He did have an alternative, however. A party of miners under Joseph R. Walker, who I mentioned last week, had found gold deposits along a place called Granite Creek in central Arizona. Others had found success digging for gold and other precious minerals along the Hacienda River. Carlton had actually ordered an investigation into these claims during 1863, and the reports came back as extremely favorable. In fact, in October, a month before the new territorial officials had arrived, the general had sent troops there to establish a post to protect American interests. This post, dubbed Fort Whipple, will become an important base in the coming conflicts with local Amerindian tribes. So, Carlton suggested this location, in the area we know as the Chino Valley, snuggled between the Sierra Prieta and Bradshaw Mountains, as the best place to found the new capital. It was growing, rich in gold, and was more or less in the center of the new territory. It also had the benefit in Carleton's 19th century view at least, of having no rebel or Mexican influences whatsoever. The territorial officials seemed to think this was a great suggestion, and so decided to make reaching Fort Whipple their goal. As is the story of Arizona again and again, one of the major deciding factors was the idea that there was money to be made in the mines. Jonathan Richmond, a young man traveling with the new officials remarked in a letter to his parents, quote, Everyone in the party are gold-struck. The fever is raging furiously. The governor had letter here from responsible men stating that fortunes are daily made, etc., etc., end quote. The officials stayed in Santa Fe for a little more than a week, but set out in late November 1863 to finally make it to this mythical place called Arizona. Carlton, of course, sent the party on their way with a full escort, heading toward Albuquerque and then taking the westward route along the 35th parallel, following the same path laid out more than a decade earlier by explorers such as Emil Whipple, Lorenzo Sitgreaves, Francois Aubrey, and Edward Beale. Their journey was actually fairly routine, despite warnings about hostile Apache and Navajo, deep snowbanks, and long tracts of wilderness without much in the way of water and feed for the animals. On December 27, 1863, it was guessed that they had crossed into the actual boundaries of Arizona, but, and I really love this bit, 
they went ahead another two days just to be absolutely certain that the patch of wilderness they were in was actually inside the new territory. So it was on December 29th that they stopped at Navajo Springs, southwest of Modern Chambers, and a well-known resting spot because it had a perennial source of water. The very sources all record that it was definitely snowing, which means it could not have been the warmest of occasions. But now that they had reached Arizona, or at least an odd little corner of it, the group decided it was time for some pomp and circumstance to formally announce that Arizona was now a thing. So at 4 p.m., shout out to early state historian Thomas Farish for having the exact time written down, the group assembled. The exact order of events is a little jumbled depending on what source you're reading, but uh, it doesn't really matter and more or less here's what happened. Richard C. McCormick, the territorial secretary who is destined to be the territorial governor in the not-too-distant future, read a short statement. I'll just go ahead and read what he said in full, as recorded by both McClintock and Farish, mainly because I just love the grandiose way 19th century figures talk. So here goes. <clears throat> Quote, Gentlemen, as the properly qualified officer, it becomes my duty to inaugurate the proceedings of the day. After a long and tiring journey, we have arrived within the limits of the territory of Arizona. These broad plains and hills form a part of the district over which, as the representatives of the United States, we are to establish a civil government. Happily, although claimed by those now in hostility to the federal arms, we take possession of the territory without resort to military force. The flag which I hoist in token of our authority is no new and untried banner. For nearly a century it has been the recognized, the honored, the loved emblem of law and liberty. From Canada to Mexico, from the Atlantic to the Pacific, millions of strong arms are raised in its defense, and above all efforts of foreign or domestic foes, it is destined to live untarnished and transcendent. End quote. After completing his fine little speech, McCormick did literally raise the stars and stripes to the sound of three great cheers from the audience. Reverend Hiram W. Reed, a former missionary in New Mexico who had taken the post of Arizona's postmaster, then offered a short prayer. William F. Turner, in his role as Territorial Chief Justice, then administered the oath of office to all the new officials in the party. Afterward, either Governor Goodwin and some others spoke or McCormick read aloud a proclamation from the governor for the new territory. In either case, Goodwin's proclamation stated simply that he had been invested with the authority of the President of the United States to organize the territory, and he was acting accordingly. Once organized, everyone would be under the rule of law as administered by the officials there present. The proclamation also announced plans to take a complete census of the people living in Arizona, to form judicial districts, and to hold elections for those who would sit in the Territorial Assembly. And, as an interesting side note, at the very end of the printed version of this proclamation, Goodwin had actually handwritten in the statement, quote, The seat of government will be, for the present, at or near Fort Whipple. End quote. The territory now officially organized, the group naturally celebrated with a few libations, Though I've seen it written that champagne had been specifically brought along for the occasion, state historian Marshall Trimble records a much more 
Arizona version, where, quote, the historic moment was toasted with a home brew mixed up in the communal bathtub, end quote. And, well, that's that. Arizona was now an officially organized territory of the United States of America. There is almost something perfect about the fact that this ceremony happened in the middle of nowhere with a handful of guides who actually walked two days just to make doubly sure they were where they were supposed to be. Though Trimble, never lacking for a good story that may or may not be true, says they may have been anxious to hold the ceremony as soon as possible because Congress stipulated that they would not start getting paid until they had taken their oath of office in Arizona. But still, there is something evocative about this moment. I recall seeing a film in the fourth grade dramatizing this ceremony, and I can still see the scene of the small campfire and the travel-weary men in my mind's eye. And if you're so inclined, there are not one, but two monuments to this ceremony. One is at the actual site of Navajo Springs, while the other is on the right-hand side of the on-ramp to eastbound I-40 at Navajo Road. It will be another month before the traveling officials actually reach the new capital, but for the moment, we're going to leave them there in the snow at Navajo Springs. And next week, we will take a look at the other civilians who started to eke out a living in the territory, and why exactly it was that Carlton felt good suggesting that the capital be established where a group of rowdy miners were eagerly digging into the rock. I'm your host, David Ruckhausen, and you've been listening to AZ, the history of Arizona. Goodbye. <laughs>